Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event looking at what the integrated review of security, defence, development and foreign policy means for the United Kingdom. My name is Alex Thomas. I'm a programme director at the uh, IFG and we are delighted to uh, bring this uh, event to you in partnership with PA Consulting. So we've got some uh, really big questions to look at uh, uh, today. The government has said the integrated review will be published in March after a long period of speculation, rumours and briefing abound. Um, but when it is published, it will be a big moment that tells us a lot about the UK's place in the world. Um, and we'll touch on that, but we'll also uh, uh, cover some uh, uh, really important aspects of what the integrated review uh, means at home and what it tells us about the government priorities on the home front. So we will be thinking uh, particularly about the domestic implications of the review. And uh, we've got a brilliant panel to uh, uh, cover these questions today. Uh, the Right Honourable Tobias Elwood is chair of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee, huge experience in uh, foreign policy uh, and a former minister at the Foreign Office. Uh, Kate Pye uh, is a partner at PA Consulting and an expert in cyber security. Shashank Joshi is a defence editor at The Economist and uh, Kieran Martin was from 2014 until last year the head of the National Cyber Security Centre and is now a professor at the Blavatnik School of Government. So welcome to all of you. Before we hear from them though, uh, a plug for questions. Uh, we want your questions. I will kick off with a few of my uh, own, um, but we'll then get to as many of yours as possible. So uh, put questions in the uh, question function. Do, if you can, add your name, tell us where you are in the country or in the world. Uh, and if there are questions you particularly like, uh, like them and they'll bump up the uh, list and I will try and make sure that those are the ones that I uh, ask. Uh, get tweeting as well. The hashtag is uh, hashtag IFGINT review, IFGINT review, uh, and uh, the IFG team will be uh, tweeting along with us uh, too. So uh, without uh, any uh, more uh, delay, uh, let's get into discussing some of these issues. And I'm going to start with um, Tobias. Uh, I mean, the review is landing at a time of, uh, I think the CDS, Chief of Defence Council, I've called it chronic instability. Um, as that plays out across the world, what does uh, that instability mean uh, uh, for the dangers that we face at home? Uh, and what do you think the review should be prioritising? Small questions there. Alex, thanks yes. very much indeed for inviting me and such a distinguished uh, group of speakers today to uh, talk about such an important subject. Um, you sort of hinted and joked, in fact, about the delay in this review. This was you know, launched back in December 2019, billed as the most radical reassessment of our place in the world since the Cold War. And a lot has happened since that uh, uh, time itself or the announcement. I would say we are going through a period of, of more danger, more threats, more instability uh, than ever than since the Cold War itself. But let's just put into context what the review is supposed to do, because very simply put, the first thing it should do is assess what those current and emerging threats are and what are the opportunities for the UK. Uh, secondly, it should help define UK's ambitions on the international stage. What do we want to do? What do we want to achieve? And then finally, it you should have a good look at yourself. You should uh, be able to upgrade your soft and hard power credentials in response to what those ambitions uh, are. And as I touched on, um, you know, the world is getting very more dangerous indeed. You you mentioned the chief of the defence staff, uh, his comments, the strategic context is uncertain, it's complex, it's dynamic, uh, with a defining condition being chronic instability. So big questions then as to what we actually want to do uh, in response uh, to that. We firstly need, I think, to take stock and say that the West itself has become a little risk averse over the last four or five years, perhaps a decade. What does it mean to be part of the West? What do we stand for? What do we believe in? What are we willing to defend? Secondly, we need to recognize that part of that instability is caused by growing authoritarianism across the world. Ever more states and non-state actors are actually abusing perhaps our dated international rules-based order to take advantage and pursue their own uh, agendas. And finally, as we illustrate in our communications here today, advances in technology and the growing reliance on data 
has actually altered the very character of conflict itself, allowing attacks on our way of life to be exacted, often beneath what we call the threshold of traditional military response. So this all then begs the question as to how Britain should respond. And that's actually why we need an integrated view to clarify what we need to do. How are we going to respond to the might of China, Russia's uh, authoritarianism, uh, the extremism that we see hasn't disappeared uh, from the Middle East? We have big questions to ask about post-Brexit security, our relationship with the EU for currently there isn't formalized uh, or anything came out of the actual Brexit discussions too. Uh, what are the consequences of pandemics? Climate change will be a major uh, aspect on uh, global security. And more fundamentally, what are our ambitions in relating to the rules-based order? So lots of big questions that this integrated review needs to focus on. And I'll simply conclude by saying, I hope Britain does up its game because we have been hesitant ourselves. Our history, our connectivity, our international reach, our soft and hard power strengths have traditionally allowed us to step forward, perhaps when other nations uh, hesitate. We're now hosting the G7. We've got COP26. We're uh, in the global spotlight again. And we've got to put our hands up. We've been a bit distracted because of Brexit over the last few years. It's time to show what, we, what our intentions really, really are. I worry about the bandwidth of number 10, whether they really have it in them to, uh, uh, to do this, to move up a gear. I hope that I'm proved wrong. I hope the integrated review will be that statement of intent for us to re-engage uh, on the international circuit. Thanks, Mr. Tobias. Really great introduction there, covering a huge uh, array of uh, issues. Uh, Shashank, um, Tobias mentioned that, touched on the pandemic. He uh, yeah. uh, also talked about the bandwidth of number 10, a number 10 that's completely, you know, understandably consumed by uh, the coronavirus response. What do you think that the pandemic has told us about our resilience um, domestically and, 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 and across the world? So, so yeah, first of all, thank you very much. It's a really interesting discussion subject for me because I spent so long for the past year thinking about the external dimensions of this review and not all that hard about the internal dimensions. So it's great to give a little bit more thought to that. The pandemic is in some ways an archetypal, um, broad, deep crisis that has stressed multiple bits of the state at the same time concurrently and, and encapsulates many of those sorts of resilience challenges that people have been warning about for years and years and years. Um, in the most obvious sense, it's a crisis that has required a cross-government response not just from a single element of the state that has primary responsibility, the NHS, Public Health England and those sorts of bits of the, the public health apparatus, but also from Ministry of Defence in logistics, the armed forces in terms of um, supporting vaccination efforts, um, Defence Science and Technology Laboratory at Port and Down for vaccine development and testing and analysis, um, the um, uh, intelligence agencies, including the, the, the uh, Kieran's old organisation in defending UK cyberspace from threats to uh, vaccine intellectual property and other sorts of hostile action. And in that sense, it, it, it embodies that idea that in a modern national security crisis, disparate bits of the state have to be working together at the same time in, in new ways. But I would say that, of course, one way in which it, it is perhaps not like other um, traditional national security crises is that it is relatively slow burning. It has unfolded over a long period. Um, you have the opportunity for scientific advisory groups to work up, uh, you know, SAGE to work up papers, um, outside expertise to feed in, cabinet to make decisions. Um, we've had a long time to learn and we have learned. I think that's very clear over the course of the past year. We've had periods of, of relatively poor uh, state response, relatively better state response. And we've seen, you know, contrast between the vaccination effort and campaign and earlier phases of the pandemic in a uh, uh, different sort of national security crisis, a uh, major cyber attack on critical national infrastructure, a major information operation that is concurrent with a UK military campaign in the Middle East um, uh, or something like that. The timescales of all of this would be significantly more compressed and I think give you far less time to learn and have far less time for these different bits of Whitehall to essentially function in parallel in quite the same way. So I think that's one of the things that jumps out at me. The other thing I would just mention is when I think of all the different dimensions of this review um, and the, the, the sort of top line themes, the geographic focus, Europe versus Asia, the focus on um, legacy capabilities versus 
sunrise capabilities, uh, land versus naval, um, um, old alliances versus new blocks and groupings. Um, there's one bit of this that jumps out in terms of what it's what it does in terms of making a demand of the national security apparatus. And that is the shift in a view from uh, um, a traditional focus of peace and war to a focus on peacetime competition day to day. That is a sense that we don't transition from a state of peace to a state of conflict, but we are permanently in a state of competition with adversaries. And so um, all arms of the state, including armed forces, including military platforms, are always competing, are always using their presence to project influence and project signaling. Uh, and, and that shift, I think, changes the way we also think about how we um, uh, uh, you know, how we, for example, synthesize those bits of the state. So to give you a tangible um, example of this, if you have um, HMS Queen Elizabeth in the South China Sea um, operating in Asia, making a sort of a prominent um, uh, a show, of, show of force and a, and a presence, if you have simultaneous um, information operations by Chinese state media and you have simultaneous um, uh, diplomatic pressure by China and engagement by other powers, you suddenly got a sort of um, uh, uh, a diplomatic and political challenge that is requiring multiple arms of the state to kick in very fast and respond very quickly. And I think that that's the way in which um, this new way of thinking about competition on a day to day basis will feed back to the national security machinery, if that makes sense. So I'll stop there, Alex. Yeah, it it, it does. There's a there's a, a lots lots in there. Um, uh, really interesting. Thank you. I mean, Kieran Shashen talked there a bit about the multi-dimensional nature of this, the kind of the breadth of it, and the uh, inter you know it's an integrated re review. So the interrelationship between um, between all those uh, different factors. What what will you be looking for to show that the uh, government has understood the uh, complexity and the depth of this, as well as the as well as the breadth of the review? I mean, particularly in cyber, given your experience, but 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 more generally too. Well, it's a hard task, and Tobias mentioned the length of time this has taken, but I wouldn't be critical of the government for that. I think the circumstances of 2020 were such, one of my favourite quotes of 2020 was from Evan Davis when the first post-lockdown GDP figures came out showing a massive contraction in the economy and he said that he felt that um, measuring GDP at a time like this was the equivalent of taking a patient's cholesterol after he'd been hit by a bus and I think that, you know, yeah. to have rushed out an integrated review in the in the middle of the of that timetable a Tobias's question about bandwidth I think it would have been a weaker uh, document and b you know things have settled down a little bit so we can now I think um, gauge the parameters ahead I think um, very briefly there are four things I'd be looking at two of them are quite nerdy bureaucratic points but I think they're important in terms of what Shashank called the national security apparatus. And if you can't talk about nerdy bureaucratic points of the IFG, I don't know where you can. And then two are more substantive. So I think the first is um, to what extent this is around, uh, you know, hard decisions around money and mandate versus aspiration. You know, throughout the last half century, if you like, of defence and security reviews, uh, we've had a mix. I don't think there's any correlation between parties. You know, sometimes these exercises have been essays and aspirations. Sometimes they've been very, very consequential decisions. This will be a slightly odd process because the lion's share of the spending has already been decided for the armed forces and for the Ministry of Defence. But what does everybody else get? And I think as an ex-bureaucrat in, in security, there is something around mandate. In the 2015 uh, Strategic Defence and Security Review, I ended up quoting that document and the subsequent National Cybersecurity Strategy to my last day in office because it said some very clear things about what the government was committed to that gave you authority and whitehall. So it's just worth looking out for that. To what extent is this? You know, I think it will definitely be an essay and aspiration, but to what extent does it empower organisations with real money and authority to do things as opposed to uh, park decisions uh, down the road? The second thing linked to that, and I think picking up on some of Tobias's and um, Shashank's point, I mean, the context has changed so dramatically. Resources are still confined. There are some choices about scope, bandwidth and deprioritization, if I'm honest. Um, a lot of the 2015 SDSR, um, you know, the, uh, the decisions were still very much based around the primacy of the threat of very well organized international terrorism. And whilst in 2020, when I left, you know, the rhetoric of that <clears throat> had um, gone down in favour of 
uh, you know, um, things like uh, competition with uh, China and threats from China, Russia and so forth. Actually, a large part of the non-military security state was very much organized towards the threat from very well organized international terrorism. And, uh, and indeed, even the terrorist threat has changed. Um, the horrific and tragic events of 2017 were actually largely self-started domestic homegrown attacks rather than the very well organized um, uh, threats coming from other organizations. So I think there are very hard questions about where we prioritize uh, resources. You know, the, you know, the, um, the big machine of Cheltenham was still largely pointed in, 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 in those directions. I think there are questions then around you know, the UK has led the world for more than a decade now. It started at the tail end of the Labour uh, period in power in broadening the scope of what we mean by national security. And I think that's welcome. And I think Stephen Lovegrove's appointment a national security advisor will help that given the breadth of experience. But I think, again, we have to be realistic. And sometimes I wonder, you know, if I take cybersecurity, it's got two dimensions of threat. It's got the big state threat, but it's also got organised crime. And they're two very different problems. And I sometimes think that Whilst it was understandable that the UK uh, treated organised crime as a as a national security threat and gave it a seat at the table, most of the discussions I'm around, whether it was about cyber crime or other forms of organised crime, just ended up with better organised law enforcement and cooperation. So again, you wonder, is that really strategic national security or should you take that somewhere else and think about it? So because we've got so many things to think about that I think we have to focus uh, the scope of the national security bureaucracy's attention. So those are the two sort of nerdy bureaucratic points, you know, how hard nosed is it around money and mandate? And what are we prioritizing? What, what is the scope of, of attention of the national security apparatus? But then I think two points um, uh, um, uh, to watch out for in substance. One is economic security and resilience. Um, I won't um, dwell on that for too long because I think Shashank's um, covered it very well. Um, but firstly, there is a point about realism. This involves hard choices. I mean, I'm noticing with somewhat wry amusement, um, you know, some of the quarters that have called for a very tough line on, say, Chinese investment in tech are now complaining about, well, you know, broadband rollout's a bit slow, isn't it? Well, you know, th there are connections between these hard choices and we need to be realistic about them. If you are going to try and have a, you know, strategically safer long-term supply uh, rather than a just-in-time from the cheapest available manufacturer, there are consequences of that. They they're probably the right choices, but let's not pretend. Also, I think the bigger question here is who are we mandating? You know, I think one of the biggest challenges of this decade will be the link between economic prosperity and national security and resilience. And do not mandate spies and soldiers to redefine economic policy from, you know, get them to set out the security analysis, get them to work out what technologies we care about and so forth. But these are trade issues. These are economic incentives issues. You know, um, um, what, what we can't do is say, you know, to the intelligence agencies and the Ministry of Defence go and work with allies to create a safe technological supply chain because it doesn't work like that and it's a much harder problem so I think we need imaginative thinking. And then my final point on cyber, um, I think I'll be looking for, you know, a recommitment of sustained effort. I think, you know, the government in two cybersecurity strategies in 2011 and 2016 have um, pushed forward very uh, well. I think in the previous uh, discussions, um, sorry, in the previous decisions pre-Christmas on the armed forces budget, um, it is tempting to see cyber as we prioritise through the establishment of a national uh, cyber force. But, you know, for those um, uh, who've sort of had to live this like me for a long time, you know, offensive cyber and defensive cyber are two completely different things. They're not two sides of the same coin. They're sort of cyber chalk and cyber cheese. Um, offensive cyber is about giving the UK a set of tools that it can use to uh, deal with a range of cybersecurity threats. It's not, um, it, it, it's, its primary goal is not the technological security of the homeland. And so I do need to, um, I would, I'm expecting, but obviously um, we'll have to see until the document comes out. I'm expecting the government will reaffirm its commitment to a very strong, secure technological base. But I just think we have to make sure that that's reaffirmed and we don't take our eye off the ball because that will be of crucial importance in the decade ahead. Brilliant. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, and uh, I can reassure there will always be a home for nerdy bureaucratic points at the <laughs> Institute for Government. Um, uh, so we em em embrace those, but but really important. I mean, mandates, priorities, tough choices, as well as the broader strategic points you're making that really, uh, uh, really interesting. Um, uh, and before I come to you, Kate, just a plug for questions. We've got lots of questions already coming in. Um, keep them keep them coming. There's some really good ones in there. I'll, I'll come on to those uh, soon. Um, Kate, I mean, 
building on what we've uh, what, what we've just uh, heard we've talked about the timing of the review we talked about the complexities and the difficult choices Kieran also mentioned uh, the resources and we're in this slightly odd situation where some of the money has been announced and we know what's coming and uh, and, and, and others haven't um, I mean uh, has all of that made this uh, harder um, uh, and, and, and what in your view should the government be uh, drawing out uh, when when the document comes out uh, thanks Alex uh, and, and on behalf of PA thank you to everyone for speaking and attending it's a really interesting set of thoughts so far um, uh, and a few thoughts from me because the IR is a pivotal opportunity to make a once and a generation change and on the back of Covid which has proved to be a huge catalyst for closer working we need to make sure that we capture and embed those changes in a good way that have enabled the UK security system to continue operating to operate effectively throughout the pandemic. So let's make sure that we keep that closer working and that integrated working uh, going forward. Uh, in answer to your question, at what's the delay done? It, it's, it's done just that. It's delayed some of the benefits that we would have had from integration, some of which um, Tobias outlined at the beginning. Uh, and it's also, um, I think, needed possibly to wait for some of that refocus on the resilience piece that Shashank threw out. Uh, and that resilience and working together across government is something that um, we didn't prioritise in the same way before the COVID pandemic. Um, there are four themes that I pick out, different to, to Kieran's four things. Um, so uh, I, I think about people, prosperity, purpose, and then planet. Uh, and as, uh, as Tobias said, we've got COP26 later this year. Um, so on people, on People in the UK have been through huge uncertainty, rapid change during COVID. And we now look forward to even faster technology enabled change as we grasp the opportunities of cyber and space going forward. That requires an urgent skills refresh, both to expand the STEM pool that we've got and to look beyond it. I talk a lot about cyber techies and cyber translators. We need both. And therefore, we need to open up the non-traditional recruiting pools by focusing on aptitude and curiosity, as well as looking at those traditional technical qualifications. And building that skills base also contributes to the prosperity agenda. And that prosperity is about building capability at home and overseas so that we can raise the baseline globally. It's a key part of economic growth, and Kieran's talked about it being uh, part of that, that borderless cyber challenge. Uh, the stability it creates also enables further growth. So our ability, our ability to support both the domestic UK capabilities and build international trust and community is the bedrock of that global prosperity we want to build, particularly where you've got cyber, space and arguably the pandemic that don't respect traditional geographic borders. For example, making the UK the reference nation in cyber, which is certainly part of what the NCSC started to do, and sharing our experience to raise the game across our allies and globally, means that we leave a more capable and stable world, both virtually and physically. Um, a, a, an interesting concept that started to come to the fore is purpose. It's gained currency over recent years. And the generation now entering the workplace, and we see the, this a lot, want to be inspired by working for organisations with a clear sense of purpose. They want to be part of a system that does things on purpose. It's shone through as departments, industry, academia and citizens have worked together to respond to COVID, build ventilators, develop and roll out vaccines. So we need to harness that momentum and the mutual respect and understanding to build a stronger, more enduring approach to resilience and pick up on some of those pieces that Shashank talked about earlier. As well as the sense of purpose, the next generation has a much more fundamental connection with sustainability. So that brings me on to the final point of planet. We really do risk disenfranchising the new generation if our current generation of leaders fail to act now to protect what will be their future, not ours. Um, so David Attenborough's recent series was a, a stark and compelling picture uh, and the instability created by scarce water, scarce power, scarce food 
is perhaps the most likely trigger of economic and social unrest, conflict and migration. So we can't write it off as a local and isolated problem. It's a global problem. And wouldn't set a magnificent statement of intent if we added a fourth national security objective being to preserve our planet in addition to protecting our people, projecting our influence and promoting our prosperity. Um, so that's people, prosperity, purpose and planet. And the I in the IR is key to addressing that. We need the integration across departments to drive the efficiencies and make best use of scarce resources to the second part of your question. Um, but to do that, we really need to build trust. Trust between departments, that colleagues will deliver capabilities when they're needed. Trust between government and industry, that they understand and support each other. And trust between citizen and system, that what's important to them is being listened to and acted upon. Without that trust, our people won't believe in the government's purpose, will distrust the motives behind prosperity, and will see the planet they will inherit suffering on a daily basis as evidence of both those things. So I think there are, there's a lot the IR can do to start to address some of those. I'm going to stop there. Thanks, Kate. That was great. The uh, enormous questions, which is the theme of the first uh, 20 minutes or so of this uh, of, of, of this discussion and um, uh, interesting link there between your, your point about the uh, planet and uh, environmental uh, aspects and what Kieran was saying around uh, uh, around sort of prioritisation and also who, who takes the decision and who, who drives this. But I was going to pick up on and Kieran, I'll come to you this first because I'm going to combine a question from me uh, and a question, our most liked question uh, from Nick Wright at uh, UCL. But I was going to ask anyway, Kate talked about some um, trust between departments. And this is a bit of a kind of Whitehall warrior question, but we all know that behind these sorts of exercises is an almighty bum fight between different bits of Whitehall, different bits of uh, the state. Uh, so uh, what what will it tell us about who's won and who's lost uh, in these uh, in, in, in this exercise? What, what, what comes out of it? And uh, I'm going to link that to a question, this question from Nick Wright. Um, uh, who asks how far have decisions around merger of the Foreign Office and DFID, increases in defence spending and cuts to aid pre-cooked or limited what the IR can achieve? So, um, Kieran first, pick out, pick out of that what you will. Well, interesting biases view on the latter um, question because, <laughs> um, you know, there are, there, are, there, there are, there's a point at, at which sort of bureaucratic battles stop and political choices begin. And I think that's very much on, on, the, on the latter part about the, uh, the aid versus uh, military spending is very much a clear political choice rather than, you know, the consequences of any sort of bureaucratic um, um, infighting. Um, I actually think, you know, unfashionable though it may be to say it, um, you know, in any bureaucracy anywhere in the world, public or private, there are always competing factions and there are processes which bring uh, competition for resources to a conclusion. And the UK is not bad at it. The UK government is not bad at it um, uh, by international standards, particularly in the field of national security. I do think that you know, there's a reason why, you know, uh, boring and nerdy as it is, you know, the Cameron coalition reforms of introducing a National Security Council and a National Security Advisor and a bunch of you know, committees that meet frequently at both ministerial and official level um, are not going to be unpicked by any plausible future government because they kind of work and they do, you know, I mean, Kate's right, the IE and IR is very important and it's not perfect and there will be departmentalitis and so on. Um, but I think that, um, you know, uh, uh, the UK has got by international standards, reasonably decent um, um, uh, uh, mechanisms. Um, the, uh, the questioner is right in that, you know, um, aspects of um, military spending have clearly uh, won. Other aspects of military spending, as I'm sure Tobias and Shashank and others will cover, um, have, have not. Development has has lost. So what, uh, what what is left now? I think, you know, it is likely that, um, you know, as always, intelligence will do well, but it will be refocused on state threats. It will be focused on, 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 on economic threats. I think it will be interesting to Kate points to see just, you know, um, I think governments, <clears throat> successive governments in the UK have always struggled to make a reality um, of climate as a national security um, uh, priority. And not just climate, but actually what you might call the sort of harder um, edged uh, problem of energy security. You know, those, um, you, um, I, I think in terms of you know who wins and who's not it will be interesting but i suspect 
little will change about how organisations whose brief are largely outside traditional national security spaces, have they actually got that foot in the door? <clears throat> I suspect that there'll be a little bit more of a nudge, um, but I think over the long term that's what's going to have to change because what um, the UK continues to be quite bad at, and it's understandable because it's really, really hard and nobody does it well, is balancing economic resilience and national security at the same time. You know, there's always a time where, you know, and we've seen this in their own in this century, you, know, you have a sort of you know buccaneering economic liberalisation and then you realise that there are some security risks with that, so you backtrack. Uh, then you take quite a hard security line, uh, then perhaps you open up again. It's trying to get those two things at the same time. I suspect in this sort of panel in 10 years time, economic interests at the table beyond just the Treasury saying, I'm sorry, we can't afford this, uh, will be a much sort of stronger feature of these types of discussion and that will probably welcome. I suspect the 2021 integrated review will nudge us in that direction, but not uh, not um, not constitute a great leap forward in that direction, but we'll see. That's fascinating. Thanks, Karen. So that's the bureaucrats view. The politicians, Tobias. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. I mean, uh, interesting what Kate said in the, you know, providing clarity, a sense of purpose as to what we are actually about. And I, I'm going to challenge, I'm going to clash with Kieran directly, but in a way Excellent. that actually <laughs> encourages him, perhaps try to persuade him to say uh, that we need that integrated view. I hear the delays, you know, because everybody's so busy, but in any business, if you are busy, you expand your workforce so you can do the things that you actually have to do. So going back to the bandwidth, if government is challenged with a number of things, too many plates spinning, you get more people in. It took a long time for Nadim Zahawi. We brought in as the vaccines minister and he's done a great job. They've expanded the team. And when it comes to uh, the integrated view of understanding what our place is on the world, the world doesn't sit still. So, yes, yeah, we're busy and we're dealing with a pandemic. Our adversaries aren't going to twiddle their thumbs and say everybody's going to have a timeout. We're all going to pause. Unfortunately, that doesn't work that way. They are taking advantage of us being distracted. And so all the more reason why we need to be clear what we stand for. Instead, we've had dribs and drabs. We've cut the aid budget. Our soft power has been removed. We've merged two uh, departments, FCO and DFID. We've seen a 10K cut to our uh, army. And uh, not only that, we're, we're also unclear what our China strategy is. And that's a big, big chunk, which is denying uh, clear, you know, clarity on where we are on the trade bill and what we do with Hong Kong and so forth. We are reactionary on so many of those fronts. So I think giving a statement of Britain's intention, particularly in this year when G7, we've got that presidency. Biden's just come out with a speech. He's not come out with their quadrennial review, but he came out with a major speech only a couple of weeks ago that said, we are back. We're with determination. We're going to actually re-engage with the West. And Yemen, for example, is somewhere where we're going to tuck into and they gave reasons for it. So I hear the understanding that there's a lot going on in number 10. But I know that there's many people in the MOD on industry, for example. You know, are we going to go forward with Ajax and are we going to go forward with Boxer? The industry themselves need those questions answered. That The answer is in the integrated review. We've got a uh, there's a trade uh, or a, a peace deal that's come up with the Emirates and it did with Israel. Two of our closest friends in the Middle East. Great opportunity for, these, for us to tuck in from a security perspective and prosperity. And my final point, sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm venting now. I can feel myself. But the biggest challenge for me and the long-term geopoli geopo uh, you know, geopolitical and strategic threat is absolutely climate change, which we're not really, you know, uh, uh, I think, come to terms with. But is actually China nudging us out as a favoured nation status with many of our Commonwealth friends. Now, that doesn't mean buying high-tech gear and you know F-35s. It's actually buying simple stuff, which we almost gift, if you like, to our friends and work with them. So we actually send troops out to Kenya, to Angola, to you know North Africa. Because if we don't, what's happening, we're seeing this right across the piece, China gets involved from their technological, their One Belt, One Road and so forth, um, the BBC World Service has just left Kenya. Okay, we've been pushed out because China has come in. And that is the Cold War that I believe is now developing. It's very, very subtle. It's China expanding its uh, authoritarian influence by nudging us out. And that is the clarity we need in the integrated review, not necessarily buying more F-35s. I'd actually encourage buying A-10 Thunderbolts. I think they're actually more useful in the stability that we're going to be doing rather than this 
high octane, high tech, high risk, but low probability clash with China. I don't think that that's ever going to happen. It's a, a brilliant vent. Thank you. And far more than that as well, Tobias. Really, uh, really good. Uh, Shasha, I come to you. There's a question from uh, Rebecca uh, talking about, I mean, building on some of the discussion about tomorrow's threat, but also agility and innovation. She, she uh, asked whether the IR can lay out the case for increased agility and innovation beyond just cyber in order to address tomorrow's threat environment. And if not in the IR, where do we turn to for that sort of um, uh, leadership? What do you think? Uh, agility. So that's, that's an interesting point. Um, I, I think we're all perhaps underestimating how much we already know about what's going to be in the review. You know, it, it's, been, <laughs> it's been briefed, it's, you know, until we, we've nearly collapsed for the past six months. And of course, there are some big top line political decisions to be made. But I mean, from the military point of view, from the defence point of view, the bit that I follow most closely, I think, you know, I, I'd be willing to put some bets on, you know, directions of movement, shifts of emphasis, um, you know, Indo-Pacific tilts, technological emphases. And I think agility is a very important part of this. And it got to what I was trying to say, I think, quite clumsily in my opening statement, which was this idea that um, there will be a lot more effort on using all aspects of state power, military intelligence and otherwise, to kind of project influence more routinely and regularly than you might have done in the past. On the defence side, the MOD, I think, calls it persistent engagement, and that includes not just operational activity, sending teams of trainers, as Tobias said, sending um, uh, naval vessels to a region to show presence, um, using defence attaches to engage with countries, or using, indeed, you know, something like a, the future commando force to show uh, more agile, quick um, presence in areas where tension is rising. We've seen elements of this in the past year in Ukraine, for example, where the UK engagement with Ukraine in security assistance has been quite nimble, quite agile, quite responsive. And that's all part of the sense of not waiting for an adversary to act and then responding, but trying to be more proactive in how you do it. Um, I think we, you know, we, we, we have a clear sense of um, this in a way from Russia, where the, the uh, part of how we define agility is in response to how we have seen uh, adversaries like Russia behave, particularly somewhere like uh, Libya, where they've been able to use private um, contractors like the Wagner Group in large numbers to project force. They've been able to use um, unmarked military assets to project their influence. And I think there's an element of kind of a, of, of sort of uh, uh, distaste and envy in, in looking at these, looking at the way in which the Russian state has been able to act with agility in places like Syria in 2015, in Libya in the past couple of years, um, in, 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 in other theatres. And I think the real the real challenge will be um, it, it partly deconflicting with partners and allies in how we do this. So, for example, when we're thinking about China and we're thinking about the challenge from China in the Indo-Pacific, which is going to be, I think, clearly one very, very important part of the integrated review. Um, to what extent does the UK focus on challenges in the Indian Ocean region, uh, in uh, uh, areas around our Commonwealth friends with India, with the Indian Ocean Islands, and to what extent do we cultivate ties with Japan and Australia in the Western Pacific and do more there? So part of the challenge of all of this isn't going to be the the uh, the sort of means, it's going to be the geographic focus and the trade-offs involved. And I think those details are going to be worked out long after the IR is published. Thanks, Shashank. Uh, that's uh, really interesting. Um, uh, bring it a little bit back more to the uh, domestic. Uh, Kate, maybe there's a question from Hugo Ro Rosemont. Uh, to what extent do you expect the IR to set out the case for deeper integration between state structures and machinery and the private sector on national security uh, issues? That, that that feels like one for you, Kate. Uh, I, uh, I wonder whether Hugo is wondering whether it's uh, the extent to which I would like it to or expect it <laughs> to. Um, I would very much like it to uh, to set out how each of the parts of our state apparatus and industry and academia and the citizen need to work together. Because if you're looking at how do you get the system as a whole to work, how do you build that adaptive organisation that can rapidly respond to whatever the next threat is that uh, Shashank has just described? Actually, you have to have that piece I talked about at the end, the trust between department and between all the other parts of the system so that the national level deals with those things that just need to be dealt with at the national level and we've built up the resilience in the system both at local and community level that means that they can take they can take control of most of uh, most of everyday um, occurrences the uh, the challenge uh, and um, Kieran and Tobias both touched on this a bit as well 
the challenge of that integration across departments is the clarity of who does what, both in the soft and hard sense, making sure that they're sticking to that and then building the trust and the links between departments so that they're trusting colleagues to come up with the capability when they need it, not recreating and duplicating inside each department. Um, and that, of course, goes back to how we're using our resources as well, because if there's a lot of duplication, not only have you got competition for funding and skills, but you've also got a level of uh, a level of suspicion and distrust that, that we absolutely need to get rid of. So should we be should we be integrating under a, effectively a coherent architecture for government in this space? Yes, absolutely. Do I think it's going to go all the way there? No, sadly, I don't. But I would like us to keep pushing it as far as we can and as fast as we can. What's your take on that, Kieran? Uh, uh, in terms of the sort of some of the you talked about some of the structural points uh, uh, earlier, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, so I think in my old patch of cybersecurity, the involvement of the private sector is critical. Clearly, in a year where we've learned an awful lot about resilience, we live in a country where. Most of the things, not all, but most of the things that we care about and rely on for everyday life are in the hands of the private sector. And um, again, to the point that I was making earlier, and I broadly endorse the thrust of what Kate is saying, um, you know, we need to avoid a sort of knee jerk. Well, let's, you know, uh, let's uh, forget that the primary purpose of these uh, organisations are commercial and service providing, and let's just set a whole pile of security requirements on them. You know, we have to make sure. I think we've tried to do this in cybersecurity and whether it's banking or energy and so forth, we have to make sure that we're building in a resilient and secure model, it, it, but uh, within the parameters of an economically and uh, viable uh, set of um, consumer uh, services. I think the structural points, I mean, Tobias, um, as I expected, uh, you know, contested uh, what I said about um, timing, and I think his, um, his points are genuinely interesting, and I have reflected, uh, maybe not on the way he uh, um, had in mind, but I'll, I'll try it anyway. We can overdo, you know, um, some of the structural and process stuff. In fact, you know, listening to Tobias, um, you know, two enormous decisions have already been taken, or perhaps three, depending on how you uh, count them. One is a significant um, increase in non-manpower related military spending, you know, technology and so forth. A second is a decrease in manpower related military spending through the cuts in the uh, uh, regular army that he mentioned. And the third is the reduction in the uh, development um, budget. And there is then the point about whether it's machinery of government changes. And I often think that machinery of government changes, certainly without a major strategic shift or, you know, the importance of them are overrated in this uh, in, in this country. Um, and certainly in terms of a process like the integrated review, is there anything left in the integrated review that could be decided that is um, that is bigger than any of those three decisions that Tobias has highlighted? <laughs> you know, in other words, um, you know, while we're waiting for the completion of a process that has been underway for a year and a half, um, you know, and again, as, to Shashank's point as well, you know, do we kind of already know what decisions have been taken and are we now just looking at strategic positioning for future decisions as Shashank has said and perhaps we're investing too much um, uh, weight in, in what's going to come out in March because you know there's a, a bunch of key decisions have already been taken and there'll be positioning but with a lot of detail to be uh, 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 to be ironed out we shall see. Yeah, much much wisdom there. Uh, thanks, uh, Kira. This is uh, um, we, we we often underestimate what we already know um, uh, from the sort of deep deep currents and uh, and and leaks and briefings, as Sheshank said earlier. There's a a, a sort of uh, broad, huge question uh, coming your way, Tobias, uh, from John Davis uh, from CPA UK um, about how should the defence of and support for democratic systems, our own and others, feature in the review, Tobias. Um, thank you for that. Yes, I think that goes to the heart. I touched on this in my opening comments. Um, you know, that we use this phrase, the international rules-based order. I mean, it, it's overused, but it does summarize, you know, the Bretton Woods organizations that have served us well are wobbly. You know, they are not working. Uh, there's an irony here. I don't want to get into this debate, but, you know, we've jumped out of the EU uh, embracing WTO structures they're not great, you know, they are not enforceable. And the bun fight that we've seen between the two world superpowers over this, leading to tariffs being introduced and so forth, uh, but also allowing China to uh, take advantage of the fact that they are very tough to 
enforce. And that needs to be addressed. And you know, the fact that you've got two formidable uh, cyber security experts on this panel shows you perhaps there are vulnerabilities in, in where the world is going. Um, the uh, Shoshan talked about you know, persistent engagement. Part of that is actually protecting uh, our new world, which is so digitally data orientated. If you think how we communicate, how we socialize, how we do business now, uh, and how easy it is to manipulate and affect that, should you wish to be, you know, from an adversarial uh, perspective. And yet, where is the Geneva Conventions to hold a country to account if they interfere and change all our blood groups in the NHS, for example? Firstly, it's very difficult to, you know, focus on who that uh, person or country actually might be. And then actually to, you know, how do you then respond to that? This is all the grey zone, the, you know, the, the hybrid warfare that we're looking at, the persistent competition that was touched on uh, before. So we need to raise those standards. And I think the interesting aspect of us hosting the G7 is firstly to perhaps elevate the G7 itself to include India, Korea and Australia, because that would take you to actually house over half of the world's GDP in one grouping and that would be a formidable organization to start reviewing uh, the international rules-based order and then provide a counterweight to our trade and security standards that will take us through in this new era uh, of, of, of where the, you know, the data world, the digital world uh, is so, so important indeed. And that's where I want the, our Prime Minister really to you know, to have that sort of Churchillian moment, uh, you know, the, the full Missouri speech that was given and recognizing this, the, the threat that is coming over the horizon, the, the clash that we are seeing, you know, China is, is taking the gloves off now. It's, you know, everybody is recalibrating their view of where things go. And I fear that we're going to end up with the world splintering into two spheres of influence. And, and you know, Britain, is a country in the past that steps forward when other hesi others hesitate. And my worry about this integrated review is that all those pieces of jigsaw that we've been talking about that are already out there all indicate perhaps a, a less than energetic uh, or in inspirational role that we want to, you know, we could play, particularly with our closest uh, security ally that has itself said, right, we're willing to undo some of the Trump policies, isolationist policies that we've seen over the last four years. Sounds like sounds like an agenda that would resonate in uh, in the Prime Minister's study in uh, Downing Street, uh, Tobias. Shasha, I was going to come to you. I'm fascinated in your view on that. There was a related question as well from Hijioma uh, Onweluzo, I hope I pronounced that right, about the role that external security organisations, uh, for example, the OSCE play in UK security and how this has been taken into account in building the review. Should we do more to, to build in that international architecture, as Tobias was saying? But Shashak, I think you wanted to come in anyway. I did, yeah. I thought uh, Tobias broadened it out very nicely, but actually just to take it right back to the core of the question, um, two points. First of all, it's interesting, you know, for the first half of the new millennium, first decade of the new millennium, we, we talked about democracy promotion. And of course, for various quite obvious reasons, that fell by the wayside and became tarnished as an idea, um, both sort of on pragmatic grounds and, and, and broad, more broad moral ones. And we're now really sort of mounting some sort of rearguard action to shore up our democracies, both the sort of underlying mechanics of those democracies, the integrity of elections, um, both the kind of the, the digital integrity, but also the moral integrity as we've seen in the United States. Um, but for me, it's it's a, a sort of simpler aspect of all of this is um, China's behavior in the world has crystallized the problem. It's willingness to uh, 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 isolate and pick off states one by one and try and create an atmosphere more um, amenable to its own um, its own ruling ideology. And we've seen this repeatedly over the past decade with Norway, um, with Australia in the past year, with other countries, with South Korea a few years ago over the deployment of missile defense. And I think you know, at, at the core of this is a very simple task for like-minded states um, who share that concern about the way in which China's power is affecting the domestic um, uh, quality of democracy in a whole bunch of states to be able to stick together and have safety in numbers. And that's that's a sort of very simple core task of, of an organization like the G7 or indeed an expanded D10, which is to say, if China is picking off Australia for calling for an inquiry into the origins of coronavirus, to show an element of solidarity and to shield states from the consequences of that kind of focused, intense Chinese 
pressure. That's a relatively simple task, but a very, very important one. And I think under a Biden administration where the US will lead on this slightly more, it will become much easier for middle powers, because, of course, that is what we are uh, like us, like, like, you know, the Japanese and the Australians and all sorts of others to, to sort of uh, fulfill to fulfill that task. And for me, that that is really is what, what defending democracy will entail, international solidarity among like-minded states, where we're able to, to do that. And indeed, another interesting example of that um, in a more niche setting might be something Kieran knows a great deal about, which is um, collective attribution of major cyber attacks. That's another example where collective action uh, gives you a certain degree of diplomatic and political insulation from the consequences of what would otherwise be diplomatically very risky and dangerous activity. Um, on the point about external security organizations, very briefly, the OSCE is, is yes, a very, very important part of Europe's architecture. Uh, I won't go into the collapse of arms control in Europe because that's that's a part of this, because we've just seen the the, the imminent collapse of the Open Skies Treaty. Um, the INF Treaty collapsed uh, two years ago. Um, but I think for the purposes of the IR discussion, the the really important point is while NATO is still the bedrock of our security, while that's still the most important alliance we have um, without a doubt, I think we will increasingly see a realization that there are other more fluid, more ad hoc, uh, mini lateral blocks and groupings in other parts of the world that we will have to latch on to and engage with in more flexible ways. In Asia, for example, the most obvious one is the Quad, US, India, Japan, Australia. But there will be many, many others in on cyber action. There will be different groupings on, um, on intelligence. There will be others. And I think it's that question of maintaining those core security alliances while realizing uh, in, in a more multipolar environment big formal institutionalized alliances are not going to be the only ones you have to engage in as a state and that has really really that imposes huge demands on diplomats and others who actually have more places to go more people to see that's a really big ask mm -hmm. yeah uh, brilliant uh, thank you there's some um, moving on to a slightly different uh, subject though, though uh, related um one of our uh, most liked uh, questions um asked about half an hour ago and i think we've slightly rectified this but not much uh, and kate uh, interested in your take on this from Simon Maxwell. Uh, he says, uh, highly revealing that no one has mentioned development in this discussion. Who would like to remedy that? Uh, Kate, do you want to have a first go? Uh, so uh, not mentioned it specifically, but actually if you look at, uh, so it's an integrated review of security, defence, uh, international and development, um, which to my view is exactly what we should be pulling together. And um, we've also talked about sustainability, we've talked about um, resilience, uh, and we've talked about bringing together some of those elements that create stability more broadly. So I think the development piece is absolutely fundamental to what we're looking at in the future, whether you're looking at stability globally uh, from food, power, water, security, which are going to be some of the key drivers over the course of the next decade without a shadow of a doubt, or whether you're looking at the, the climate change elements that are now starting to figure much more broadly in the in the national discussion, if not yet quite in the um, in national policy, although that will inevitably follow. Um, I think I think it is a, an essential part of it. One of the things that I would say is that I don't um, and Shashank kind of alluded to this. Many more of the issues that are really important now are not quite single issues but come up really quickly and need to be handled in the right way much faster. So actually having systems that can deal with the single issues that come up on social media around which people coalesce and then disperse, being able to form and reform alliances much faster, depending on the threats that are coming up on the day and depending on the issues that, that are in the public psyche that's the thing that that we our system is not yet set up to do it's set up to be stable and steady and have something that's a considered response we need to achieve that level of response but much much faster in the future thanks kate um got a, a left field question as she describes it um from uh francis uh, De Souza, which I'm now trying to find, but it, uh, she was asking anyway about the um, uh, youth representation uh, on the review. And uh, given that young people will be the main recipients of the decisions that are being made now, this is supposed to be a long-term uh, exercise. Um, is it uh, 
is it crusty establishment types who are making these decisions rather than uh, the people who are actually going to be affected by them? He says, trying to stir up some controversy from somebody who would like to uh, take that one. Tobias. I, I think it's an important question because ultimately it is the next generation that's going to inherit the world that we're currently responsible for. And if we screw it up, um, they're going to look back at us and say, well, what are the decisions that you made? And I think there's a sense of honesty that needs to creep in here as to the current state of our hard power, uh, which we've not really discussed. And I touched on that in my opening comments. We need to be uh, frank about the state of our armed forces. You know, we're now only buying 40 F-35s. We were going to buy 138. Uh, our Royal Navy fleet is tiny. Uh, China's Navy is growing the size of our Navy every single uh, year. We are advancing into cyber and space capabilities, and that's very good, but we still want to have that full spectrum capability. And ultimately, we need to be, I think, uh, uh, honest at, you know, of, of the state of affairs. Our Challenger tank is over 20 years old, not been upgraded for over 20 years. Our warrior APC is in the same perspective. If the nation was aware of all this, I'm sure they wouldn't be uh, wanting to see further cuts taking place. Uh, the second aspect of this is the focus on climate change. You ask any of the younger generation, they are more aware of it than I think our generation is as well. And we ourselves need to wake up for that because although we can't see it and feel it, it is absolutely there. And that's where you know, COP26 absolutely comes in. And then the final piece, I just wanted to, um, Shoshank talked about us being a middle, uh, middle power, I think he described us. You know, I like to think that Britain is more than that. You know, you look at our history, our reach, and so on, I touched on. We actually provide the thought leadership. We're the ones that actually understand the world a little bit and provide some of the answers and the solutions. And if Britain doesn't do that, which in the West, which other countries are willing, you know, to do that? And that's actually why we add value to the, our relationship with the United States is uh, they've got the might and so forth, but they absolutely enjoy listening and, and appreciate listening to our uh, understanding of the world and, and perhaps putting forward some of the, the the world's solutions and then leading, stepping forward and other nations will actually follow. And I think the younger generation would like to see us do that as well, not slide back to being a middle power or even less than a middle power. People are starting to compare us with Belgium. I hope nobody from Belgium is, is going to take offence with that when I make that comparison, but I think you understand uh, what I mean. Thanks, Tobias. I'm not going to comment on that one. Uh, 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 Shashank, did you want to come in on that? Yes, I mean, Tobias, I'd like to think I'm six foot five, but I, in fact, am substantially less than that and have made my peace with it and must live with it. And I think so, too, uh, does that apply to nations. But I, I, I take your point. But I think actually um, it, it's not to diminish what capacity and influence we can have inside coalitions. Mm -hmm. And indeed, that's not just in diplomatic terms in sort of G7, but also in military terms. The direction of this review, the direction of our military capabilities over a much longer period, uh, have moved progressively in the direction of uh, a, a diminished capacity for independent power projection, independent capacity of action, and more and more towards slotting into coalitions in different ways. And part of what I suspect we'll see, could be wrong, but I suspect we'll see, is a greater capacity to play niche, specialised roles in broader coalitions. And, and that's going to be very important. But I, going back to your original point, I mean, I, I take a very different view uh, to the one you've laid out. Um, I mean, your level of ambition is admirable, but I still find it staggering that in the middle of a pandemic with astonishing levels of public debt and focus on public health capabilities and domestic welfare and furlough schemes that we've been able to find what are fairly substantial sums of money for hard power and defense and yes you know lots of it will go to pre-existing legacy pro legacies the wrong word projects like renewal of the deterrent and future combat air programs and so on and so forth um but you know we're not going to get any better than that this is the best it gets to bias isn't it you know we're not going to get three percent we're not going to get all of it the choice really Really is now between reallocating that expanded pot, that surprisingly expanded pot, uh, towards uh, um, uh, modernised future capabilities and accepting risk, accepting vulnerability, accepting bets may fail because they do and none of us know the future of conflict, the future of war, or indeed uh, taking a different direction. But in terms of the level of aggregate funding and the focus on hard power, I think actually we've done pretty well relative to all comparable states uh, that I can think of, including our sort of perennial comparator France. 
May, may I come back on that? Okay, come back. We've got one minute left. So, Tobias, you've got 30 seconds, and then if Kieran it's, or Kate want to, final 30 seconds. There's absolutely a connection, though, between security and prosperity. And this is, you know, we're not just lining up to say like transport or, or home office or, or other departments as well. You invest in our hard and soft power and it can reap dividends from the perspective of building strengths and relationships which advance prosperity. That's more money uh, for the Treasury. And that's the different case between other Whitehall departments. And that, I think, is important for us to understand. If we, we diminish our security, it will impact on our prosperity. And uh, if there was a theme of uh, uh, this discussion, uh, I think the uh, integration and interconnectedness, as you would expect, uh, of, of those and other issues is it. Um, I'm going to, I'm not seeing anybody uh, wave, desperate to get in, uh, and it is one o'clock, so I'm going to draw it to a close there. Um, uh, thank you to everybody for some brilliant questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get through all of them. Thank you to the panel for what uh, I found a fascinating and very thought-provoking um, discussion. Uh, thanks uh, to PA Consulting, as I said, for partnering with us on this. Um, we will put the uh, podcast feed of this out on the IFG Live podcast channel and uh, the uh, event will be up on our YouTube and other channels uh, to watch in the next 24 hours or so. Thank you all very much indeed and uh, have a good rest of the day. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.